No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison, and very soon, no more shows, because this is the uh, penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 10. This is the second to last one. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a huge finale planned for you, and I'll have details on that uh, at the end of the show tonight, or today, because it's 9, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, but I'm all fired up, as you can tell, folks, so uh, I'm ready to rock and roll, and our guest is definitely ready to rock and roll. And, you know, as I've been saying throughout the last year, as I've been interviewing all these folks who've been on the show in the past and some new folks, too, um, you know, I'm very, really careful with who I've had on in this final season. Um, I've really – you'd almost call it like an artisan-style uh, podcast here. There, every guest has been hand-selected by me and, and personally chosen from the vast – pool of been all of America guests we've had in the past and possible potential guests uh, for the newcomers. And I knew there was one guest I really wanted to get back. Uh, and, and I was like, I don't even know if I can find him, um, you know, but it's one of the most talked about shows we've ever done. And I would love to do uh, a return to this topic, a refresher on the topic and sort of celebrate uh, the topic because I think that uh, what we're going to be talking about really kind of exemplifies the whole spirit of what this show's been about for the last 10-plus years, and that's, you know, exploring the strange and unusual and, and sort of demystifying the strange and unusual in a, in a lot of ways um, and, and, and going down roads that a lot of other places just wouldn't go um, because I don't, think, I don't think our guest has been on too many other podcasts because most people hear the topic and they're like, that's crazy, man. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna go there. But as soon as I heard the topic, I was like, "That's crazy, man. I want in." And so uh, that's how we kind of came together back in 2011. And it was had to be one of the most talked about episodes we've done in the history of uh, the show. Uh, people still bring up uh, bring up this, this this stuff to me whenever uh, we're talking about the show. So I knew when I was wrapping things up, I really wanted to get him back on the show when. As luck would have it, we could make it happen, and we're so close to the end now. It was like, well, this guy and this topic, this is the perfect sort of uh, perfect sort of penultimate episode, perfect uh, final, uh, you know, long form interview we're going to do for a while. So I knew that uh, that this was the this was the one to hang our hat on. So the I've, I've teased it enough. You've probably uh, already heard if you're listening to this. It says it right on the uh, MP3, I guess. Um, our guest is. Cullen O'Reilly, 
of the Long Riders Guild. And what most people, he's kind of synonymous, I guess, if you're a listener to this show, with, with three simple words, meat-eating horses. Um, as I said, every time, you know, people come up to me, they ask me about the show or talk about the show, events and stuff, meat-eating horses comes up almost every time. Uh, it was such a memorable addition to the program. Uh, and as I said, it's definitely one I wanted to revisit here as we close shop uh, for the time being. So welcome back to the show, Kikulin. Thank you so much for uh, returning to BOA Audio. Hi, Tim. I'm glad to be back, and um, I'm looking forward to talking to you because I have a lot of new information to share with you and your listeners. Nice, nice. Well, I figured you would because, like I said, it's been uh, you know about six, seven years since we talked. So It's been, it's been seven years, and it's interesting because um, when you contacted me the first time, uh, it took me by surprise. Uh, consequently, I was surprised again. Uh, because I focus um, only on equestrian exploration. Um, I don't listen to radio very often. And uh, so um, the, the chance to, to speak to the public uh, through you um, was, um, was, uh, was a nice idea. And um, I, I'm glad to hear that people um, showed an interest in the, um, the concept of dangerous and meat-eating horses, because um, I think that you touched on a really important point um, things that we um, take for granted today uh, would have been mysterious or um, um, unacceptable uh, in previous generations. Uh, you know, Charles Darwin, the great historical long writer, um, he actually spent more time in the saddle than he did on the on the ship, the Beagle. Oh wow! Um, but when he came back to England, and um, after many years of thinking about it, you know, he announced his theory of evolution. It changed humanity. And it shook a lot of people up. But at the crossroads of every generation, you always find people who are standing there trying to guard uh, against any kind of change or free thinking or new evidence. And so I think that what you're doing is offering the public um, a chance to um, really further understand horses and what they are potentially capable of doing and what they have done in the past. And so I think this is an overdue conversation. I'm glad to have it. Absolutely. And like I said, uh, easily one of the most memorable episodes of the show. People have asked me to sort of do a reprise of it, but I was like, I kind of wanted to save it for a special occasion. And as well, I said, you know, I have to jump in and say that it wouldn't have been possible for this because I've been distracted. Um, the only reason I talked to you in the beginning was because I had made a accidental discovery. I started off in 2010 to write what I thought was going to be a short book called The Horse Travel Handbook. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't understand at the time that – I don't know if you know this or not, but up until 1925, the, the great Sphinx of Giza was buried up to its uh, chin in sand. Yes, yes, Nobody actually. Nobody had any uh, idea how yeah. big it really was. Right, yeah, so when yeah, I started yeah. Making, when I started drawing, you know, writing this, what I thought was going to be a small book, uh, it got bigger and bigger and longer and longer, and um, it ended up taking me seven years, and the Horse Travel Handbook ended up becoming the three-volume Encyclopedia of Equestrian Exploration, and I only recently completed that. Um, and so one of the topics that I investigated and documented while I was doing the encyclopedia was um, how humanity fed horses and how horses have the capability to be savage and to eat so many different things. 
Um, and so it was. I've only just finished the encyclopedia, presented the first copy to Queen Elizabeth, and I'm only free now to talk to you at last. Well, yeah, it's long overdue, man. It's long overdue, and uh, you you expressed some concern, I guess, when I emailed you. Uh, I, I I should I I, I kind of beating. <laughs> No pun intended. I'm beating a dead horse here. Um, that yeah, folks, don't freak out. You know, we're gonna be back eventually with other stuff. So it's not like this is the end of the whole Banal of America franchise. This is just the end of uh, of the uh, of of the podcast as you know it. I guess you could say that's probably the best way to put it. So don't you know? This is chances are this isn't the last time we'll talk to you, Colin, but it may be the last time for a while. So. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, make that point in case people somehow – why would they tune out? Because we're going to be fucking tearing it up right now. Um, <laughs> so well, I, 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 if we're going to talk about horses, I mean, you know, yeah. and it's interesting that we're using technology to discuss um, this ancient um, um, relationship with this other imp- important species. Um, I think it's great that we're using radio to do that. So – um, what I think is obviously also really interesting is how technology has become such a dominant part of most humans' lives, um, but horses and horse history, um, whereas it helped shape human history and civilization as we know it, it's um, basically now a, a victim of sort of mass amnesia. Um, so I think that you, we need to ask you know, and discuss a lot of things about this. Yeah, Absolutely. Concerned. Yeah, well, I was thinking about that when you were talking uh, when we started the show just now, because I'll never forget um, what I learned the first time I interviewed you, and that was just about how, uh, you know, the, the the whole civilization, especially sort of like before, right before the, the car came along, like there were like millions of horses uh, that they were using for transportation, and then, uh, you know, they wiped them all out once the car came out. And it's like people don't, like you said about the collective amnesia, it's like people don't realize just how massive the horse population was uh, throughout the world, especially in cities and stuff like that, and, they're, and, they, and they wiped them all out. All right. We, we can talk about equinocide in just a minute. Yeah. Okay? I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute. But let's, let's just take a test of what, we're, what we all collectively know today. I mean, for the sake of your audience, I mean, just imagine me asking you some questions and, like, you know, hands up if you on a mobile phone – our hands up if you can operate an ATM machine or if you belong to Facebook. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And now, hands up if you know how to change the needle on a photograph or if you know how to drive a manual transmission car or if you know the difference between a hackamore and a halter. Now, all the first examples involved machines and technology, mm-hmm. but very few people uh, nowadays, especially in different countries, have ever seen a horse, have ever touched a horse or ridden or even traveled on a horse. Uh, and so what this um, discussion is about is about how knowledge is generational, and some of this knowledge is passing out of – it's becoming extinct. Or that's what the guild's trying to preserve it from becoming extinct. Hmm. Um, but as the 21st century progresses, more and more people are migrating into increasingly larger urban centers, and they're losing touch with not just nature but with horses. Yeah. Well, re- re- uh, you know, refresh the audience on the Aquinas side because, like I said, that that really that was one thing that when I came out of the original conversation with you, I was like mind blown. Just I was like, this is you know, as I said, I mean, there were millions of horses, and you can elaborate on this. But there were millions well, it, of horses it, it, in, in cities across the world 
As soon as they started rolling out cars, they had no need for the horses, and, and you know, they wiped them out pretty much. It's, it's not just horses. We used to live, uh, I say we, we as a species, used to be part of a world that was populated with animals. And in an increasingly mechanized world, it's difficult to comprehend how many animals once populated our planet. Uh, for example, at the beginning of the 19th century, there were 30 million buffalo in North America. But by 1890, there were less than 5,000 of them. And in 1949, an American, Leonard Clark, rode across Tibet. He counted 1,000 wild equines in one herd. Um, and so the whole population of animals themselves have diminished so dr dramatically and drastically. Um, horse use, you brought up equinocide. Yeah. Um, the horse was such a part of um, everyday civilization. Um, I, in the encyclopedia, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it talks about the huge numbers of horses that populated, that were, they, they, were, they were urban herds of horses. Um, it was a world uh, fueled on hay, not gas. And cities like New York would, you know, routinely house, um, oh, ten, you know, tens and tens of thousands. One example in the encyclopedia shows a four-story stable in Germany, um, and um, the, there was a ramp that led up, and they would take the horses up by their hundreds and put them inside this giant building. Um, and the, in New York, I think it was in the 1880s, uh, there, was a, there was a stable, one entire stable, that took up an entire city block. Wow. So the number of animals and, in the world and the number of horses in the cities was tremendous. But with the onset of the mechanical age, um, you know, th these things really, really, really changed. Um, uh, for example, when Joseph Stalin took power, um, and I think it was 1928, between 1928 and 1930, they uh, implemented a new ruthless agricultural program in Russia, and 47% of all the horses in Russia were, were killed. Jeez. So the demise in horses in farming, in the military, in travel uh, in the last century has brought about um, a disconnection with people, uh, with horses. Right. Um, so that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. They were, they were they were almost like commonplace at the turn of the last century, and now it's like they're they're for for most people, I think they're kind of like exotic in a way, which is crazy to think about, you know. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, we, I was, I was thinking about your audience. So, um, your audience has access to television and um, and movies and the cinema. I hope so. And so you are subjected to a steady stream of equine images. All right, you see cowboy movies, or you see, you know, people riding in parades, etc. Uh, and since I last talked to you, an incredible incident happened. Um, two uh, long riders set off to ride from the top of Africa to the bottom of Africa, Billy Binchley and Christine Hinchy. And uh, they had left Tunisia, ridden all the way across uh, North Africa, down through the Sudan, went down the Nile, and then they reached Uganda. And when they got there, absolute pandemonium ensued because nobody had seen a horse in Uganda since 1966. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And um, in the photographs that I sent you, there's a photograph of Billy uh, surrounded um, by hundreds of school children. Uh, at one point, 800 children came charging out of a school um, to see the first horse they had ever seen in their life. And um, it was interesting what the children asked Billy because um, he, he and I discussed this, and he, he remembered the questions. And he said, is that a kangaroo? And <laughs> they wanted to know, does it speak Arabic or English? <laughs> and does it eat people? And they wanted to know if it was faster than a bus. So this, this connection um, with horses is um, – it, it depends on which country you're talking about. Right, but right. it's obviously it's spreading. Yeah, I mean that's pretty amazing. That's uh that's that's surprising to hear. Um Now how did now I should uh I kind of just jumped into this because I expect that people know who you are and everything because you've, you know, this episode the the episode you're originally on is like famous in, as far as uh the of America goes, but I'll, I'll let me give the thumbnail <laughs> Let me give the thumbnail bio now that we're like 15 minutes in the interview. Uh, Colin O'Reilly, he's an investigative reporter who spent more than 30 years studying equestrian travel techniques on every continent. He founded the Long Riders Guild, the world's international association of equestrian explorers. The organization has members in 46 countries, all of whom have made a qualifying equestrian journey of at least 1,000 miles. The guild has supported equestrian expeditions on every continent except Antarctica, He's also the author of the Encyclopedia of Equestrian Exploration and uh, the book that really we're focusing on here in this conversation, Deadly Equines. Um, and I, uh, let me see what the subtitle is for Deadly Equines because that's uh, Deadly Equines, the shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses. And as I said, uh, you know, like anybody who listens to this show has, has at some point either brought up the meat-eating horses or, or asked, you know, asked me some kind of question about it or – you know, if they ask me, like, about my favorite shows, I'll mention it, and then they'll be like, oh, my God, I love that one. So it, that's why I wanted to have you on here as we close close down the party. Now, how did well, you uh, – yeah. oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, how did you – when did this – because I want to, like, sort of segue into the meat-eating horses part of things. And it's like, how did you originally come upon this um, idea, I guess you could say? Like, what, what, what was the spark in your mind where you were like, wait a minute, something – Something's going on here that maybe people don't know about. It was a Frenchman, Jean-Louis Gouraud. Jean-Louis Gouraud is France's um, premier uh, equine, living equine uh, academic historian, equine historian. And um, we were talking, uh, and because France has um, a different colonial history than um, England, um, John, we grew up with different horse stories than you or I or our people in London would normally associate with. And um, during one of our discussions, he casually mentioned um, the how the Af- one African tribe would raid another African tribe, and they were riding horses. And I thought, you know, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about Zulu, Michael Caine, you know. Yeah. Years. I, I didn't know Africans rode horses, and I didn't think about that. And then he said, uh, yeah, and then when they went, they would raid the people, they would kill them, and then uh, they would feed the dead babies to the horses. And I was, my brain just went, I'm sorry. There was this frozen moment. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. didn't take that on board. And um, that was the first episode I ever heard of where horses had consumed human flesh or any flesh. I thought, I'm sorry, you know, horses eat grass, 
you know, a horse, a cow, yeah. a peaceful herbivore. They mean us no harm, you know, that whole mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as I started doing the research for the encyclopedia, what I discovered was that our cultural interpretation of horses strongly influences what we feed them and how we interpret them, and even how we react to them. Um, uh, you know, if you think a horse isn't dangerous uh, and you let your toddler go around it, uh, there could be seriously negative repercussions, to put it politely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this thing all came about quite by accident because of this Frenchman. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I remember, as I said, talking originally, and one of the things that sort of stuck with me also was, uh, you know, you kind of succinctly put it in the sense where it's like, I really, and, and the listeners too, unless they're like really into horses, um, you know, I really have no like emotional investment into whether or not horses eat meat or not, you know, so it's like people need, when they first hear this idea, I think their brain kind of shuts off because it's like, they, that's, you know, it goes against everything they've They've been taught by the media, maybe in school, but at the same time, it's like really, it's a, it's kind of like a basic thing. It's like maybe, it, maybe it's it's not a big deal if horses eat meat, folks. It's not like it, it doesn't upend your worldview, you know. So people need to be open minded about the possibility here. We're, we're, there, there's there's two topics in here, and I'd like to focus on one. Mm-hmm. And the topic of the book is deadly equine, and what has happened. Uh, in the ensuing seven years, is that more research has been uncovered from around the world, um, which proves that horses um, um, are much more deadly than the majority of people believe or understand or appreciate, and that previous generations of human beings not only knew this, but they took advantage of this, and uh, they they wrote about it quite frequently. For example, um, just... I mean, just a week ago, I received a very rare book from India, and there was a translated Sanskrit poem from 1070. Oh, wow. And it told, it told the, uh, the story of a famous mare called Kabutri, and I'm quoting from Sanskrit now, and it says, Where her master killed three with his sword, she killed ten with her feet and teeth. So... This idea that horses are these, you know, lovable ponies, they mean you no harm, this is something that has um, become a pervasive idea, but mm-hmm. it's not based in historical accuracy. Right. It's almost like a new idea. It is a new idea. For yeah. example, you know, when Arthur Conan Doyle, who everybody knows, wrote Sherlock Holmes, he didn't write just that. He was a great um, historical writer as well. And he wrote a famous book about the Hundred Years' War, and he talks in that book about how um, this one horse grabbed a priest and just savages him to bits. And back in 2011, um, I mentioned and explained how people had lost touch with this part. Right. But this has changed dramatically since you and I first talked. Really? Yes, it has, because... Now, I I can't attribute this to your show, but what I can tell you is that um, the perception that horses can be dangerous is definitely growing. And you can see that um, in the work of a really well-known, best-selling English author named Bernard Cornwell. Back in the 1980s, he wrote a series of best-selling books about a man called Richard Sharp. They made a TV series about him, Sharp. 
Um, but more recently, Cornwell's written um, a new series about a Saxon warrior named Uthred, which I think you can see there in America as well. And Uthred rides this deadly black stallion called Torment, and that horse routinely bites people's faces off and disembowels them. And um, so not only did people in the past know about this, okay, um, but now people are riding it into, uh, into current television, books. Uh, you're going to see, I think, more and more people are going to be able to accept the fact that horses are much more aggressive than they, uh, than they suspected. Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, once you kind of, like I said, once that idea gets planted into your head, then you start to see things in a whole different light. So that, that's for sure. Now, what we talked in 2011, what kind of, I'm sure, you know, back then you were getting new accounts all the time. So, what, I mean, what's the latest got, sort of stuff I've you've heard? A, I've got an account that I, I, I pulled this up. I've, I've got two things. I've got two accounts that I'm going to tell you right. about. Um Back in 2011, I, um, the book had come out, and I talked um, about a, 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 an infamous, deadly stallion from Canada called Rysdek. Uh, in 1886, this horse, this stallion, had killed four men. And I um, gave you that example in, in, uh, when we first talked. And, uh, in fact, I sent you the, an image just before I uh, rang you. And you can see in the image, you can see Rysdick grabbing this man by the shoulder. And imagine um, a dog grabbing a rat and shaking it. Now, that's what a, an equine does. When an equine normally attacks a human being, they grab them either on the face or on the shoulder, and they shake them viciously. Yeah. Now, Rysdick, back in 2011, was what I thought was the first example. But recently... Um, a new example came in, and let, let me just jump in and tell you that unsolicited evidence has been arriving nonstop for the last seven years. Yeah. Okay. So stuff just email comes in and goes. Oh, by the way, you don't know about this, and that's how this happened. Uh, I received the story of Harry Gant. He's a cowboy who lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I've never shown. Obviously, I've never shared this story because it just came in. But I'm quoting now. Quote. This happened at noon Friday, May the 23rd, 1890, in Fort Collins. An imported Percheron stallion weighing 1,900 pounds was being led down the main street of the town by his groom, a man named Thompson. The stallion broke free, turned on Thompson, grabbed him by the shoulder, and threw him 20 feet. The horse then rushed over and landed on Thompson's chest with both his knees and crushing him. Then the horse began tearing Thompson to shreds while people on the sidewalk looked on helplessly. People rushed to the hardware store for guns but were stopped on account of the danger of hitting some people. And then an old cowhand came up and roped the horse and got him into a barn. And then Harry goes on to say, it was found out later that this, man, this horse had killed a man in France before being sold to a cowboy outfit in Wyoming where he had killed another man. <laughs> I sent you Harry Gant's photograph. Of yeah, the yeah, I see it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting is that people like Harry Gant and people in India and previous generations, they were fully aware that horses were capable of this incredible aggression. Yeah. And uh, they actually used this in combat, as the Sanskrit poem from um, from India proves. 
But more recently, there in America, um, there have been episodes where, um, for example, the um, American long writer, Bernice Indy, uh, she started writing back in 2005. She's written 25,000 miles during eight journeys in the United States and Canada. Wow. And she's the only person to ever ride ocean to ocean in both directions on the same journey. And um, in a recent interview I did with her, uh, Bernice recalled how the worst thing that ever happened was how she was nearly killed by a horse one night in New Mexico. She was sleeping outside when a Mustang stallion attacked her, and she managed to drive him off with a rope, and she said it was worse than being uh, attacked by a grizzly bear. Dear God, yeah. Jeez, that sounds rough, man. Well, I think this is what the, what the problem here is that most modern people lump horses in with cows, and they think that they're nonviolent herbivores and that they use their teeth to nibble, nibble succulent greenery. Yeah, yeah. And um, in theory, I'm sorry, in actuality, um, horses can be incredibly dangerous because they're they're so equipped by nature to um, harm human beings. Yeah, yeah, that's the point, yeah, especially, yeah. I mean, I've been around horses, so it's like, they're kind of, in, well, they are, they are intimidating. They're not kind of, they are intimidating. I mean, they're 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 huge, man. They're like, they're massive. I think people, Well, the, you know. the, the a horse is really agile. He can run, he can jump, he's got a mouthful of teeth. He's seven times stronger than the strongest man. And when a horse kicks you, it's like being struck by a bowling ball traveling at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. So... The um, the ferocity of a horse attack is something that's just – you have to it, – it's a horrible thing. If you will notice, this is something else that happened. Um, weeks, with, um, weeks after the book was published and soon after I had done the interview with you, I was contacted by a, a woman in Australia. And she wrote to say, um, thank you for publishing the book and warning the public. And she then went on to tell me about her unfortunate daughter. And I sent you a photograph. You can see that young woman's face. Mm -hmm. And you can see the giant mark where a Frisian horse has grabbed that woman. And what makes um, this story so poignant is that this Frisian horse had been raised by this mother uh, from a foal. She had had this horse his entire life. Right. And her 18-year-old daughter was holding the horse. And uh, I'll quote this email for you. Mm -hmm. My daughter was holding him when, like a switch, he attacked her instantaneously by trying to rip her throat out. Ugh. He went for two consecutive blows with the first one tearing the flesh from her chin, that's what you can see in the photograph, and then the second one hitting her shoulder, and he was aiming for her throat when she fell to the ground. He only missed her juggler by millimeters, and then the mother rushed in and grabbed her um, and saved her life. Um, you can see the savage size of the bite. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not going to share this with people, but it's gruesome. It's evidence that Horses are much more dangerous than we than people understand. And in 2012, uh, a mayor of, of Texas, William Bolke, was killed. And in 2013, a man in um, Hungary, Sandor Horvath, 
he was killed. Um, so these things have been going on for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. It might also be, too, that there's a thing where it's like there's not so many – there's not as – excuse me. There's not as many horses now as there were back then. So it's like um, – you know, I wouldn't know if somebody got attacked by a horse, like in the town next to me. So it's, <laughs> you know, but maybe back in the day you, you would. You know what I mean? Well, actually, we have a lot of horses in the world. Um, we're just not in contact with them on a daily basis. Right, right. That's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, your great-grandfather would have known how to hook up a horse to a wagon. Um, you know, your grandfather probably rode horses on errands. And previous generations in different countries um, were riding horses. Um um, right up until um, the 1940s and 50s. As a matter of fact, we just received information about um, the Somali equestrian culture, and they waged the longest war against colonial aggression of any people in Africa, and they were mounted warriors, and uh, they fought up until the 1940s. So horses used to be a much bigger part of human life on right. a daily basis. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's uh it's pretty it's pretty wild. Now, when we were talking to set up this one this uh this conversation, you mentioned um that you've been looking at child uh you know horse 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 uh, horses attacking children. Um, well, now this is you're yeah, right because this is this is one of the reasons I, I I was glad to talk to you again. Um, I, I, for the sake of argument, you know, you're six feet tall and you weigh 180 pounds and you're an athletic uh, fit man. And, um, you know, if you see a what looks like an aggressive animal coming toward you, you can pick up a big stick and go, hey, get back, you know. Yeah. Um, we can all picture and visualize as adults who are listening to a radio show, we can think, oh, yeah, I, I could do that. I, I could save myself. But what I discovered and what was really upsetting were the was the historical documentation of children who were victims of horse attacks. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said, well, you know, it might happen, but I wouldn't know about it because, you know, it's not happening. Well, it actually is happening, and it's happening right now, or it has happened just recently. And um, I have before me a list of children victims. The first one I came across, I mentioned back in when we did the original interview in 1855, an English uh, author was in India um, when he encountered this infamous horse called the Man-Eater of Lucknow. And he says, and this is according to his eyewitness account, um, that he saw coming towards him a large bay stallion trotting down the road. Dangling from his mouth was a dead child. Which the, which the horse was shaking savagely. Nevertheless, when he saw me in my buggy, the horse threw the toddler on the road and immediately rushed to attack me. Oh, jeez. And that guy got away. And we talked about that the first time. But yeah, yeah. What hap- what's happened since then is that people have been sending in newspaper accounts or historical evidence. And I sent you another photograph of a episode in 1874 – there's an image from the um, Albany, Illinois. In 1874, a horse broke free from a man, rushed into the house, grabbed, a, grabbed the baby out of its crib, and bit it and was shaking it to death when the father rushed in and saved it. You can see that in one of the images that I shared. Yeah. But then the, the attacks continue. Um, 
Some horses, I don't know why, I'm not a scientist, I can't say that I can give you any scientific reason for this, but there's a steady stream of this. In 1931, a horse attacked a six-year-old child in Liverpool, England, rushed across the street and grabbed it in front of its mother. And then it goes up into our century, and um, back when I first talked to you, I had already learned that uh, little four-year-old Bailey Stockton in Concord, Oklahoma, he was attacked. Um, uh, according to the local sheriff, um, the little boy was playing in his backyard by the back door, and a horse, which was grazing 50 yards away from the home, it saw the boy, and with no provocation, it ran over, jumped the fence, and grabbed the child by the throat and killed it. And um, that happened in 2001. And since I've been talking to you, um, in 2011, um, in Suffolk, England, the newspaper reported that a horse had grabbed um, a number of children and adults, but especially children as they were walking down a path. It would wait for them and lurk by the path. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And then, of course, I sent you the photograph of little Stephen Goldsmith, and he was three years old. He was walking with his mom down the path. The horse was leaning up there against the fence, and you can clearly see in the photograph where the horse grabbed little Stephen by the front of his chest, picked him up, bit him, and then threw him through the air. Um, so we have uh, quite a – there's a growing body of evidence here about equine aggression. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, for sure. You don't want to leave your kids around these things uh, unattended, folks. Um, well, that's yeah. true. And I think that 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 when um there's an American long writer um, who recently finished her second journey through uh, the Nevada desert, and what Nevada has a huge population of wild feral horses, right. and she was continually attacked. Her and her horse were continually attacked by wild horses out there. Really? Um, yeah, that's right. Really. Uh, and so we're not talking like she was. Um, provoking them or chasing them or hunting them, she would they would see her and they would come over after her and uh, attempt to attack either her or her horse. And this is why while she was in the saddle and while she was uh you know in her tent. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is this like a territorial thing you think? It is. It is. It, it you know, horses are very territorial, especially stallions and um and they're curious and as the evidence clearly indicates they can be tremendously destructive. And this is the concept that I like to get across to people. Um, you know, horse whisperers, you know, that genre that people call horse whisperers, they say, oh, you know, the horse is a herbivore. Um, um, it means you no harm. Uh, it always flees from danger, and history proves that that's not true. Right. That there are, you know, look, I'm sure you've never killed another human being, and I'm sure most dogs haven't killed other dogs. But we both accept the fact that there are dogs and are humans that can do that. Yeah. And that's what we're discussing about horses. Right, exactly. We're asking, yeah. we're asking modern people to go, wait a minute, I need to step back here and reconsider this idea. Yes, exactly. That's what I was talking about earlier with regards to our original conversation. It's like uh, – you know, that's what encompasses the whole spirit of this show for all these years. It's to, you take a step back and re-examine, you know, what what you think you know in light of what you're being told uh, by the guest, you know, and make a judgment for yourself. And I think nothing I, I, I think, 
exemplifies that more than the meat-eating horses concept. I I think that that applies to a lot of things. Um, You know, people um, a lot people have conceived strong preconceptions about different things: religion, politics, animals, sexuality. Who knows? Yeah. Um, But you know, when it comes to the historical evidence of destructive destructive actions, for example. Most people um, in modern America, for example, they they don't want to undergo a fundamental change in how they see this because this brings up the idea of how how is the horse perceived today, uh, you know, by most modern Americans, and um, it's you know evidence is one thing, but cultural bias is something else, and their personal and cultural bias prevents an objective reappraisal of what we're talking about. Right, exactly. Um, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like you said, the Disneyfication, Disneyification, however you said it, uh, you know, of horses. They become this sort of cartoon caricature where it's like, there's a lot more to it, folks. There's a lot more to it. Well, I've got a question to ask you and your listeners. Sure. And, you know, and, and this is this is um, kind of a giveaway, but um, it, it's 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 a it's an important point. It's, it's about humans and horses, and I'm going to ask you, the question is, what do the Shango tribe in Nigeria and the Assyrians, the Buddhists, the Celts, the Hindus, Islam, and that's Sunnis and Shias, Christianity, oh, that's Old and New Testament, the Jains, Judaism, the Mormons, the Vikings, Persians, Romans, Japanese Shinto, and the Sikhs. What do all those things have in common? And the Afra, the answer is they all have examples of horses either being worshipped or they have stories of horses in their sacred text or they depict horses in statues, paintings, or icons. And in every single example of that, these are images that are positive and the horse is seen as a... Um, as an image, as a powerful ally and a force for good in a fight against evil. Yeah. But what we're talking about is a different aspect of the horse's nature that most modern people have lost touch with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, That's why we're trying to bring them up to speak, Colin, right? That's right. Well, you know, and I think this is – you know – we base our we we base religion on personal beliefs, and um, but beliefs change. And you know, for example, nobody today believes in there was a, a white stallion called Svintovit, and he was a, uh, a, a a white stallion that the Slavic pagans believed could foretell the future. Yeah. And nobody believes that anymore. And nobody believes that Neptune um, still travels across the ocean pulled in a chariot by waves, you know, horses made from water. Yeah. These all seem really silly, um, but those beliefs were, you know, things that people used to believe in and they were quite common. But the idea that horses could be deadly or that horses' diets could be not what we think they are, they have a problem grasping that. Yeah, and it's such a it, – to me, it's just like, as I said before, it's like people shouldn't – why would you have an emotional investment in what horses eat? Like I don't unless you're unless you're a super horse aficionado or something, and then you should, you know, I'm guessing that maybe you you already would kind of be hip to what this is all about, you know. Well, um, when we talked the first time, um, I discussed how 
I had made the, um, to me, startling discovery that um, horses had played such an important part in um, polar exploration. When um, uh, there was an English long rider named um, Henry Jackson, and he had gone to Siberia and crossed Siberia using the famous uh, Siberian Yakut horses, they can survive in minus 60-degree weather. Wow. They, they can go into a state of semi-hibernation. They have special hair, which retains their heat. And um, so when Jackson used these horses he, in Siberia, he also realized that they could uh, – this is in the 1890s. He, nobody had reached either the North or the South Pole. So when he decided that he was going to try to um, live for a year in Arctic conditions, he took Siberian horses with him. And the, last, the first time I talked to you, I explained to you about how – one of Jackson's horses was um, uh, a great fan of eating polar bear meat, and um, he just gobbled it up. It was actually a mare. And when Jackson returned to England after spending a year uh, up in the Arctic, um, Sir Ernest Shackleton, who went on to become a famous Antarctic explorer, he spoke to Jackson, and they talked about how powerful horses were and how much more they could pull than dogs. But, of course, there's no grass in Antarctica, and I explained to you the first time around that I had made the discovery that um, based on Jackson's observation, Sir Ernest Shackleton went to the British military, and the British military knew that horses could eat meat. They had observed this in different cultures, and they actually had it in their British uh, cavalry manual um, that horses could, were capable of eating meat or fat or blood or et cetera. Yeah. So um, – Shackleton went to the famous military depot at Aldershot, and they created something called the Maji Ration, and it was kind of a pemmican for horses, and it was um, sugar and uh, meat and some other components, but the basic component was that it was meat, and so Shackleton used this to feed his horses on the way to, south, to the South Pole. And that much we knew in uh, 2011 when I talked to you. But yeah. what I also discovered since then was that this idea of feeding horses meat was carried on. Um, Professor Harold Goldschmidt, who was Denmark's most famous equine nutritionalist and scientist at the beginning of the 20th century, he had learned about the Maji ration from Shackleton. And he was um, fully aware that horses could consume protein. And so when um, a, a man named Captain Johann Koch decided that he was going to try to cross Greenland with horses in um, 1911, um, Professor Goldschmidt, he also invented a kind of meat-based ration, and that's what they fed the horses when they went across Greenland. So the idea that these animals can survive on protein uh, and not just grain or just grass or just hay – depends on the culture and where you come from. Now, I have two questions for you. First, could do you know, like, because now I'm kind of like got mad scientist brain. Maybe because it's like still, this is technically early in the morning for me. <laughs> it's 10 a.m. It shouldn't be. Um, could you, do we know the recipe of this Maji ration? And that that's sort of one thing. And then the second, now I know, I assume based on your your work and everything, that you have horses. Have you fed them meat? Have you ever fed them meat 
you know, have you ever fed? I mean, there's not. I mean, that's it. That's the question. Have you ever fed your horse's it, meat? Wait, wait, wait. It's um, the first thing is is that as soon as I found out about the Maji ration, yeah. Um, the, the, I, I, I contacted the British military, and I said, "What about this?" And they were they were dumbfounded. Um, they didn't know about Shackleton. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a, a photograph of Sir Ernest Shackleton's compass here on my desk. I, I know his daughter Alexandra, and uh, I'm holding a picture. The photograph is me holding Sir Ernest's compass that he took down to the South Pole. Um, uh, so, you know. Shackleton's attempt to, to I mean, he, it wasn't an attempt. His creation was really significant. And when there was three men and one horse left, and uh, they were uh, on their way to the South Pole, and the horses had shown such an appetite for the Maji ration that they enjoyed eating it more than they did their grain. And so the humans that were with the horses twigged this, and they actually sampled it. And at one point during the journey to the South Pole, Shackleton and his two human colleagues and the surviving horse all ate the Maji ration, <laughs> which means it's the first time in history that humans and horses sat down and ate meat together that I know of. Right. But the but the British military don't have the recipe. They they they, they I don't know if it was lost or overlooked. Um, and but the, but what we do know from Shackleton's writing is in my book Deadly Equines. That much we know about. Um, and yes, I did try to feed meat. Um, my wife's Cossack stallion. She rode Count Pompey from 2,500 miles from Volgograd to back to England. And um, when this when this started becoming known to us, we asked ourselves, well, you know, will he eat it? And the answer was no. He turned his nose up at it. But what's interesting is the number of people that have written to me since then with evidence, and I have 153 messages. The last one was received in December the 15th, 2017, and they go back to the last time I talked to you. So the evidence keeps coming in about horses eating jerky, horses in Yakutia eating fish, horses, God, I mean, it just goes on and on. Yeah. Horses eating blood in Tibet. Um, and, yeah, it, in Deadly Equines, hold on, let me go to the front of the book. There is a map, and this, of course, this map is way out of date now, but there is a map in the front of the book that starts and it goes back to 900 AD and it lists all the places in the world that horses have been found to eat um, different types of flesh. And even back then, the last time that you and I talked, I had already documented that horses had been known to eat antelope, beef, birds, chicken, fish, goat, hamsters, horses, humans, moose, Polar bears, rabbits, seals, sheep, tigers, whales, and yaks. Wow. You know, Where's the hamster? E well, how did a hamster get eaten by a horse? I had, you know, I have to go back to the. <laughs> <laughs> I what the hell were those two doing together? Oh uh, God. Yeah. What, did what I also would like to know is, did I when we talked last time? Did we talk about the um, the Nazi expedition that went into Tibet and filmed the horses drinking and eating blood? 
I think we may have. I mean, if you feel free to talk about it, man. I mean, this is you know, this is some well, people who haven't heard the episode is, before, so I, I, or they haven't know, heard it in seven years. <laughs> so well, you, let, know, uh, you know, let's hear it. We have to understand that you, you know the. I didn't grow up. I mean, I grew up watching Roy Rogers on a black and white TV. Okay, and uh, you know, I saw you know the Lone Ranger on Saturday, and so when the Lone Ranger and Tonto got off. You know, they got off and they gave, you know, Silver and Scout some hay, you know. They didn't feed them hamburgers. But so our cultural perceptions are really strong, and what we see and perceive are based on our childhood and what our friends and our elders tell us. But in Deadly Equines, there's a, there's a really ominous photograph. It's, not, it's actually a woodcut, and it's from the 16th century. And it shows a horse. Um, a man has been killed. He's been killed by a warrior, a soldier. And the horse is, you know, um, happily devouring the entrails of this dead human. And um, you would think that that's just, you know, yeah, that's horrible. That's ridiculous. But then, as I was telling you, um, I'm trying to find the page here where it talks about this. Well, I think while you're looking for that, I think it's – I'll, I'll restress a point I recall making in the original conversation, and that was that we're dealing with like sort of two separate phenomena here, folks. We're talking about that horses eat meat. That's one thing. That's right. And the other is that they can be aggressive and, and deadly. So there's two different right. – you know, that's why it's um, you know meat-eating and murderous horses. There's two – That's right. You know, Colin has uncovered two sort of uh, two strains here that are very, very remarkable and, and thought-provoking. And, and th- I think that that's why, it, you know, it's called Deadly Equines, but the subtitle is the, the story of meat-eating and murderous horses because, um, you know, like, again, like like we began at the beginning of this conversation, you know, people don't think of horses as being murderous. Um, when I first talked to you, I gave you an example of how. And, and I can remember this was the shocking moment for me uh, when I had the conversation with the Frenchman, and he told me about horses eating children in Africa. I, I mean, my, my brain just couldn't grasp that. I have since learned that 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 those kind of things do happen in different cultures, and horses do do consume people. But what was really hard for me to grasp personally was the story of a woman who was killed in Alaska. And as you know, there's a lot of grizzly bears in Alaska. And the book describes how this horse, known to this woman, um, owned by this woman for a long time, she went in to do some routine chore, and the horse, again, like the the Frisian horse who attacked the young woman in Australia, for no discernible reason, this horse killed its owner. And what was so disturbing was what the Alaskan police officer said he said i've seen a lot of victims of grizzly bear attacks but what i saw in that stable was worse than anything else i'd ever seen and so it's that perception that we need to change right you know, it's the idea that you know we don't know it all and i think that's what's so great about your show you're going hello we need to open up our minds here and let's consider the fact that there's a lot of evidence that other cultures and nations know about that we aren't privy to Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and just don't base your and, stuff on cartoons. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, let, let, let's talk about cartoons and let's talk about you know um, 
let's talk about what Hollywood does. Um, we have this, um, um, you know, for example, there was a heart, there was a cartoon called I think it's called Spirit Stallion, some kind of cartoon about a monster. yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a cartoon, and it's a cartoon, you know, and it's got you know a character bad guy supposed to look like you know George, you know General George Armstrong Custer, and you know bad guy good horse. That's a cartoon, you know, and well, what we're discussing is the reality of horses, and you know some horses just like some human beings can be tremendously lethal. Uh, and like I said too, like like you just pointed out, there's two. There's this new idea about this dietary evidence, and that's why I brought up the Nazis. And I do have the the info here. It was in 1938 when um, an expedition was organized by Heinrich Himmler, and uh, he sent in Dr. Ernest Schaefer and a team of German explorers, and they went into Tibet, and um, what they discovered shocked them, of course, being Europeans and horsemen themselves, they watched a Tibetan post rider um, arrive, come riding up, and they saw a Tibetan lead up a goat and cut its throat, drain the blood into a bowl, and then they mixed barley in with the bowl, and all of this is being filmed by the Nazi film crew. The the tired post horse then walks up to the bowl and eagerly um, eats up the sheep blood and the, the barley. Jeez. And what do the Nazis think of this? Well, one of the things that um, – this is not directly involved with what we're discussing, but this is an offshoot of that. One of the things that's explored and discussed and revealed in – the uh, encyclopedia is the um, uh, largely unknown use by Hitler of horses in his um, military uh, establishment. He, it, it's a common perception that um, the Blitzkrieg was all about um, machinery and technology and how deadly they were. Uh, the Nazis had the, you know, the, uh, they had the V2 rocket and they had the Tiger tank. And they had fantastic machine guns, um, but they didn't have a lot of gas. And here's something else that's really culturally interesting. They didn't have a lot of drivers. Americans by the 1920s, with thanks to Henry Ford, lots of Americans knew how to drive cars. But owning a car in Germany was prohibitively um, expensive. Most only, you know, Generally, only rich people could own a car, and not a lot of people knew how to drive in Germany. Um, so you didn't have a lot of drivers for the German army. And on top of that, there weren't enough vehicles for the German army. And so when Hitler went to war, he employed more than a million horses, and then they confiscated horses in every country they went into. And so by the time Hitler went into Russia, there was about, I think it was 1.7 million horses in the German military. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you had this giant military machine fueled by horses. And in the encyclopedia, what I also talk about is um, how it's been swept under the carpet that the Germans viewed the horse as being um, a symbol of their national uh, superiority. And so in, when they held the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, the Germans won more gold medals in the equestrian sports than has ever been won ever. Oh, wow, really? They took them all, okay? 
and it was um, I uncovered SS. Uh, poster showing the SS officers with the SS slogan, and it, they were showing them at the Olympics. And what I also uncovered was how Hitler had, once Hitler annexed Austria, he was quick to put a Nazi in charge of the Spanish writing school where the Lipizzans are. And the Lipizzans then became a part of Nazi propaganda. And the encyclopedia has uh, a copy of a Nazi propaganda pamphlet with uh, the Lipizzan stallion, you know, rearing back on its hind legs with the swastika up on the bottom top. Yeah. They actually held a special um, performance for Eva Braun. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Nazis and horses and all that stuff that was known to those guys. Um, and, um, again, it's just more evidence of how little – we really know, and and how much more there is to discover. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure. I mean, you're getting these accounts all the time, right? So it's like absolutely, they're they're, they're still coming in. I mean, um, uh, what have I got here? I mean, I just got in in late last year. We got uh, film evidence of horses in Yakutia. That's over in Siberia, and the horses routinely eat fish. And so, um, you know, there's this film. You know, and the horse is just gobbling a frozen fish like it's some sort of, you know, candy. <laughs> yeah. There's something about that horse, Buster. You know, it's like we looked at each other, and then there was eye contact, and I was looking at the horse, and the horse was looking at me, and then it hit me. I think maybe I was a centaur in my past life. Well, something tells me you probably would never have man, half horse, but hell, what do I know? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Dude, I think it was a centaur okay. in my past life. Uh, it totally occurred to me. What makes you think you're half man, half horse? Now, in your time around, we talked about you trying to feed the meat to the horses. Have you ever, has your, have your horses ever shown any sort of like troubling aggression like this? Um... No, I, I, I have um, I have spoken to victims. Yeah. And um, it, it, uh, it, now this is interesting. When I um, um, when I talked to you in 2011, I had finished the book, and in the book is a um, is a story about a horse called Freight Train. And back in the 1950s, uh, this girl. She was she's a she's a mature woman now in her seventies, but she was ten or eleven years old. She was at a riding stable, and she said that she watched this horse at the riding stable walk behind a mother duck. And as the mother duck was walking, and the ducklings were walking behind it, freight train walked up and ate the ducklings one at a time. Bam, bam, bam! Just ate them up. Whoa. And she was just horrified by that. And Meanwhile, just recently, last few months or so, um, there was a video released on YouTube showing a horse walking along, eating a line of ducklings. So, you know, these things are happening. More stuff is coming out as, yeah. we, as you know, you and I are talking. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Uh, it's, it's um, you know, it's just pretty remarkable. Like I said, uh, uh, as you as you said, actually. Um, you know, it seems like more people are kind of waking up to this idea, or at least being more cognizant of it, you know, the possibility. Well, 
the thing is, is that a lot of this is cultural. Um, I had um, a conversation, uh, an email exchange with a man in Nepal who said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but in America they don't understand or they don't believe that horses um, can consume flesh or fat or awful or blood. And um, he wrote back and said, oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's been pretty routinely known that, you know, you can feed a horse um, meat uh, here uh, because they're depending on on the the climate and what's available. Um, this this has a lot to do with what the horse eats. There's a famous uh, French long rider. His name his name was Gabriel Bonvalot, and he made a wonderful trip from Paris to Hanoi in the 1890s. And um, he went um, overland through Russia, and he hired some Siberians. And when he got into Tibet, it was so cold that the Siberians begged to go home, okay? And oh, wow. how cold it was. So anyway, he was going along, and he met Tibetans who um, were riding um, meat-eating horses. And they, their horses were um, fully trained to eat meat. And uh, that's... that's, that's um, Something that the, the climate forced on them. Yeah. And what I find is interesting is uh, we've talked about this before, but, again, it's like it's been seven years since we talked originally, so we, um, I have no problem re- rehashing old ground. Um, and that's that these horses that, that eat the meat, they, uh, they sort of take on sort of different, a little bit more aggression, right? I mean, it's almost like a, this is almost like a circular thing in a sense where it's like if you, if you develop a meat-eating horse – no. There's a chance it could turn murderous. No. No? No. Oh, I thought no. I thought you were saying before that it sort of like improves their makes them aggressive in a sense. No. No, oh. no, I'm not saying that. No, no, no. I'm mistaken. We know we, look at we we're we got we got apples and oranges here. Yeah. Okay. We know that horses attack human beings. Okay, that, that that's a concept. Okay, you know, we have to we have to move away from the fact that horses are peaceful herbivores, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, horses can be potentially murderous. That is, that's, that's, a, that's one idea. Now, we also have to accept the concept that horses are capable of omnivorous dietary habits. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the ways that we know this is thanks to National Geographic. Okay? Because back in 1951, National Geographic made this amazing accidental discovery that they didn't they didn't figure this out. What had happened was is that the communist Chinese had taken power in the east and they were pushing their way west to what used to be called Turkestan. And um the CIA had a agent uh out there and his name was Douglas McKiernan. And he was—he had been sent out to what's now Western China to plant secret detectors uh, because the United States was worried that Russia was trying to um, create a nuclear bomb. And so he had—he had planted underground detection devices. But as the communists started moving further and further west, McKiernan realized that he had to flee, and the only way he could get out was to go to Tibet. Okay. And meanwhile, an American um, 
graduate student named Frank Bessick showed up at the consul, and uh, McKiernan and Bessick and a Russian, uh, a white Russian, um, they fled on horseback and towards Tibet. And when they reached the Taklamakan Desert, they were mounted on special meat-eating horses. They, these horses had been trained to eat meat so that they could cross the desert and get across this place with no pasture. Yeah. But it didn't make them aggressive. They just had this capability, okay? Mm-hmm. And so then McKiernan and Bessick reached Tibet, and unfortunately McKiernan was shot and he was beheaded. Yes. He was the first CIA guy killed in the field. But now what's interesting is that National Geographic reported on the subsequent migration of this entire tribe. When the communists continued to press westward, these people called the Cossacks, they, all, they decided, okay, that's it, we're out of here. So the entire tribe of 10,000 people got all their camels and sheep and goats and horses, and they fled to Kashmir. And those people rode on meat-eating horses. That's how they crossed over the deserts. And National Geographic wrote about that yeah. back in 1951, about meat-eating horses. But nobody twigged at the time to this. Interesting. And since I've talked to you, talked to you last time, I have uh, been in contact with um, a famous British explorer named John Hare, and he's the world's expert with Bactrian camels. And he interviewed some of the Cossacks that actually rode those horses, and then came out and settled uh, in India. So the, you know the the evidence is there, and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the horse becomes aggressive. You okay, know, yeah, that's, see, that's – okay, so not necessarily aggressive, but that, I guess that's oh. where I was confused. But the, but if you do feed a horse, didn't you say before that they like sort of um, – they get more – I don't know. They get, they, get, they get stronger or more hardy. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, you're, you're thinking if you take a 16-year-old boy and you pump him full of steroids, okay, yeah. he's going to get really big muscles, and he's also going to become hyper-aggressive. Right, okay? right, right. Okay, now that's not exactly what happens because – for example, when um, the Nazis filmed the Tibetan post horse drink and eat the blood and the barley mix, the horse just walked off and shook itself and went to his stable. Okay, so the the diet doesn't necessarily have a link to the violence. They're, okay. they're two. I would say they're two largely unknown things about the equine that most modern humans don't understand or believe exist. And I think that's what we need to get across. Yeah. It's not that I'm trying to prove it because I don't have any reason to prove it. You know, this isn't like religion. I don't have a a dog in this fight if you see where I'm coming from. I'm not yeah. trying to prove anything. Yeah, no, I mean there's like a million – This, you know, not a million, but there's, there's countless stories here uh, you've told over the years on the show and, and today that uh, – about horses being aggressive, so there should be no, there should be no debate about that. I mean, that's a, fa- a fact. I mean, I don't know what people, you no, know. No, no, no. There is a debate. I, I, all right, yeah. I guess you're no, right. Wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm wait, just convinced, so I don't think there is. <laughs> it all goes back. It all goes back to the beginning of Dudley Equines, and um, what happened was is that in the in the in the book I explained how um, what interested me originally was I saw a letter to the editor. And um, it was a letter written to the editor of um, The Horse Magazine, which is a very prominent American, still uh, widely um, read American magazine. And this perplexed American horse owner had said that um, uh, he had witnessed um, a horse 
um, in an act of aggression, and you know, could they explain? And they wrote back and said, "No, we don't have any explanation for it." I, you know, they didn't call this person a liar or say he was delusional, but they just wrote it off. And so, as all this stuff started accumulating, because then that's when you could start to detect a pattern. Yeah, you could actually detect two patterns. And some some places um, like Yakutia, they uh, in northern Siberia, they've always known what horses can do. Their, their perception hasn't changed any. Uh, they they see horses as um, they describe horses as um, our brother wearing a different shirt. That's how they see it. Interesting. Okay? Yeah, that's right. It's interesting because they don't see themselves as being that different. They also don't use harsh language with horses. They don't use crops or spurs. And of course, you know their their survival in minus sixty degree weather depends on the horse. But they also eat horses in that country. You see, that's <laughs> wow. another. That's another big taboo. I mean, have you ever eaten a horse? Uh, no, not that I know of. Okay, right. All right. Okay, so you've never eaten a horse. Do you, Do you know anybody in America who has ever sat down and went, "Wow, I'm going to have horse for dinner"? No, I've never met anybody like. Yeah, I'm not, right. I don't know anyone who's ever like, you, said that. Do you know why? <laughs> why? Because of the Pope. Because ah, of the Pope and the Vikings. Because in 732, I think it was, 732 A.D., there was a religious conflict going on in Western Europe, and Roman Catholicism was was exerting a, a larger and larger influence towards the northwest of Europe. They were moving out of Rome, out of Italy, across the Alps, further and further north, and they were encountering cultural and strong religious resistance from the Norse. The Swedes, the Danes, the um, um, the Swedes and the Danes, yeah. and the, the Vikings the, themselves, and Nordic religion had um, a really important part was to was to was to celebrate by sacrificing a stallion and by eating horse meat, and so in, in Judaism, for example, uh, and Islam, it's against the religious laws to eat pork. Okay, so nobody, you know, Muslims don't eat pig meat. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Well, what most people have forgotten is why there is a tradition now in North America and in England still where they don't eat horses. And that's because to combat the influence of paganism, the Pope passed a religious edict saying that no Christian could eat horse meat. Huh. And that, that's where that came from. It was a religious taboo. It's not cultural. It's religious and it was imposed by the Pope, and he sent a bishop up to the north of Europe and said, right, anybody who eats a horse is not a Christian. You've got to go to hell. Wow. You can't do that anymore. And it, it stayed in place for a long, long time. But then as Christian, I'm sorry, as Catholicism lost its theological hold with the Reformation, more and more Europeans, Italians, French, Belgians, they started consuming horses again until it's now quite common in parts of of um, Europe. That's amazing. I never. Uh... In fact, that's what happened to the horses in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union. <laughs> so let me. So it, now this is really interesting. Um, let's talk about. We've talked about ho- what horses eat. Let's talk about what humans eat. This yeah. is interesting because. Um, if you go to Montana, nobody's going to sit in and go, hi, how would you like to have a pony burger? And you go, what? I'm, there's just no way. But in the encyclopedia, I warn people 
said, look, where you go is going to influence what you are offered to eat. And a lot of cultures um, eat horses. Now, for example, in Italy, which, you know, passed this religious taboo against eating horse meat, the Italians actually later um, had a huge, they have a huge fondness for horse sausage. And so um, lots of people have told stories about how when the Soviet Union imploded, um, people rushed in to take advantage of how they could buy up all the military hardware. They even made a movie about that starring Nicolas Cage about some savvy guy who goes in and you know he buys jets and tanks and machine guns and makes a lot of money. But only one guy, a British long writer named Jeremy James, he's the guy who documented how the Italian mafia rushed into the former Soviet Eastern European satellite countries and hoovered up all the horses because there was horses all over Eastern Europe. Right. They had been used in agriculture, and they were they were owned collectively on the farms, and they suddenly represented a tremendous amount of money, and so they slammed them in trucks and took them to Italy and turned them into sausage and made a lot of money, and basically that was the second big equinocide, um, and that happened in the 21st century. The first one happened in the early 20th century with the invention of canned dog food. Yeah, right. Um now we talked about this originally, and now it's more prevalent than before, I guess you could say, or more. Um, there's probably more to it than there was when we first talked in 2011. Because in 2011, you just you just come out with the book, uh, Deadly Equines, and it was already sort of like some some uh, pushback, you know, from from horse people. So it, now it's been seven years. I mean, what's the what's the reaction been from the from the horse community to to what you're saying? Well, I. Um, religion and horses have a lot in common. You know, what you're born into is basically what you, you – most people stick with what, you know, mom and dad taught them. Right. You know, so if you're a gaucho in, um, in Argentina, you don't eat horse meat, okay? But if you live on the other side of the Andes and you live in Chile, you eat horse meat, okay? It depends on which side of the mountain you're on, all right? Yeah. And um, so the reaction has been based on which country is responding, okay? Um, but by and large, um, people are um, – they're curious, and, and, and they're, they're thinking, oh, okay, you know. It's, I mean, it's pretty hard to – when you look at, you know, film footage, you know, shot by Nazis in 1938 in Tibet, I mean, I'm not making this up. I mean, you can go on YouTube and look at the film footage, and there's a horse eating this. I mean, you know, that it's just – that's a fact. Right. So um, the, the – but the original reaction was interesting. I had a, an exchange with a, a well-known American equine academic. and She had written a horse book, which was basically a recitation of all the usual stuff. You know, you know how you know horses pulled plows and horses pulled chariots and horses were at Waterloo and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I said, look, you know, I'm doing this encyclopedia. And by the way, I got distracted and I got into this dietary aggression thing. And oh, really? And she was at first really interested, but then when the book came out, I said, you know, I'd like to see the book and share it with you. Okay, fine, no problem. And you know, she basically the, there was a shriek, you know, and. Uh, um, I said, well, you know, what's wrong? And it wasn't she didn't believe it. She finally just 
basically went, yada, 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 I don't want to talk about it because it was, there was the evidence. It's just that it made her so uncomfortable right? Um, that um, she just didn't want to continue the conversation. I mean, it's, it's not a comfortable conversation. I mean, you know, we think of horses as being big, lovable, benign creatures, you know, um, but that's not – you know they're not always like that that's that's just the, the reality of it right exactly it's uh so so aside from that but i mean have you got you have, have you got like hate mail or anything like that or are people just kind of like uh they just they just shut their mind off to it no no as a matter of fact um it's it, it's a funny thing because we're because we're addressing an american audience what i've been getting are a lot of fast food stories and it's like oh my horse always ate hamburgers oh my horse loves pizza <laughs> you know, and yeah. um, you know, so so what we have are people who are um, um, coming up with more stories. Um, you know, and and like I said I, earlier, I mentioned um, the, the Colorado cowboy Harry Harry Gant and yeah. how he he was an eyewitness to this terrible savage attack. But uh, Americans also have stories, and and they they have modern stories about how their horses will nibble on stuff. You know, they come back and their sandwiches are gone. Hey, what the hell happened? Where's my sandwich? <gasps> Twinkie, you ate my ham sandwich. You can't do that. You're a horse. And Twinkie's got this guilty, you know, look in her face. So um, I think that's what, what is that? There hasn't been any concerted, um, you know, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. Yeah. I mean, it can be impossible. You've seen the stuff yourself. I mean, you've seen the photographs I sent you over to today. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean it makes. Uh, like I said, I mean, when you like, like as we've said, you know, if you take a step back, it's really not that radical of an idea. Of an idea, you know. Well, you know, I, let me let me give you a parallel, okay? Now, if I say, you know, we talk again. You know, most people, most people have cell phones. Most people drive in um, very complicated automobiles nowadays. You know, computerized, complicated automobiles. They travel at great speeds. Okay, um, they don't interact with nature very much. Okay, they if they do interact with nature, then maybe they go to a picnic or they go to a park or whatever. Um, and so their perception of animals itself has changed. And so you know, I'll take for example just one one animal that's talked about in the encyclopedia, and that's bears. You know, um, I, I I warn. Equestrian explorers I said, look, man, if you go into bear country, let me tell you how bad it is, and here's why it's so bad. And I explain it all. When you tell, when you ask most modern people to think about a bear, they usually visualize like you know a teddy bear, or if they're English, they think of Paddington Bear, or they remember the little bedtime story about Winnie the Pooh. But um, in the in the encyclopedia, I explain that there's eight different kind of bears. And that they are um, really, really widespread. And then I go on to list one, two, three, four, five, five examples in a row of people in America. Um, John Wallace, 59, he was killed in Yellowstone, 2011. Lana Hollingsworth, killed in Arizona, 2011. Kevin Kammer, killed in 2010. And Montana Harvey, killed by 2005 and Carl Staker yeah Carl Stroker 28 he was walking with his girlfriend in the hometown in Alaska a polar bear chased him down killed him and consumed him in front of the townspeople oh Jesus 
So people don't have a problem with polar bears eating you. You know, if you go up to, um, let's see, where was poor? Poor Carl was in Port Lay, Alaska. So, you know, if you happen to find yourself in Port Lay, Alaska, you might want to look up and down the street both ways. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you see a polar bear coming, you're going to go, hey, my God, that's a polar bear. You know, he ate Carl. He'll eat me. Right. You don't have a problem with that. But if you go out to the field and you see a horse, you're not automatically going to make that same assumption. Now, one um, episode, I don't have this in I don't have this man's name in front of me, but a um, an episode has happened since I last talked to you, and it happened in Tennessee. Yeah. And this man drove up to the um, to the pasture to pick up his dad. His dad was overdue, and he saw his dad standing, I mean, lying in the field, and the horse was standing over him, and he couldn't understand what the horse was holding, and the horse was holding his father's arm. He had killed the father, and he had torn his arm off. Oh! Yes. Now, that that has happened since I wrote the book. Oh, and, shit. Um, there's, there's other examples like that. So, you know, again, this gets back to polar bears in Alaska. You know, no problem. We can accept that. Uh, a murderous horse in Tennessee, that's kind of hard for us to put our brains around. Yeah, yeah. Well, not me, ma'am. This is like uh, we have a guy We have a guy who's come on and talk about – the crazy, uh, the the dangerous nature of cruise ships, and I, I won't even go on a cruise now. And it's like, I when I see a horse, I'm kind of have the same mindset. I'm like, all right, just just be careful around this thing. Um, God, no, go ahead. No, well, I was going to pivot to something else. Not like you were going to talk about what I just said. Oh, go, go ahead. Go. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to jump into the wolves part of this conversation because that you said that this is sort of something that's ah. really caught your attention uh, in recent years. Yeah, well, you know, um, if I if I was an Italian Catholic in 732 A.D., I wouldn't eat horse meat because that's taboo, right? Right. Okay, so you understand the concept of a cultural taboo, don't you? Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. Right. So so let's let's so let's go let's move into a cultural taboo. Okay, I have to. Uh, you got to give me a minute here. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Gotta, that's all right. I got to flip over here and All right. Um I made a really radical discovery, okay? You, you you have to understand I don't know anything about bears. You know, I, I don't go to look, looking for bears. What I I I'm only interested in equestrian travel. You know, if I want to get on uh, you know, originally, I went out to Afghanistan in the 1970s. You know, I wanted to ride across that country, and then later on, I rode across Pakistan. You know, and so my focus is always, you know, if if I live in Boston, how do I get to San Diego? Right. You know, that, you know, how do you do that? And um, because I went to a classic riding school in England, you know, I thought, you know, knowing how to make a horse go on a perfect figure eight or jump over painted sticks, I thought that was going to help me become an equestrian explorer and that didn't really help me a whole lot in Afghanistan, if you get where I'm going. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so learning how to tie a turban, that was practical, but knowing dressage didn't help me much. Um, so a lot of the things that I've had to learn have been um, forced upon me by circumstances. And when I was doing the encyclopedia, one thing would lead to the other. And I would think, oh, okay, well, what about this? this surely this can't take very much time to investigate and you know, and look into. And so I wanted to warn people in volume two about what I call the challenges 
You know, how do you cross a border? You know, uh, what about what about horse theft? Yeah. Um, what about uh, we've already talked about you know um, cultural taboos. What about sexual taboos? You know, well you know um, what about animal attacks? Oh yeah, you know animals they attack you and they'll eat you and your horse. I better so I warn people about that. What do you mean? Hold on, I gotta stop you here, dude. What, what do you mean sexual taboos? Well, uh, you know, um, I got a dirty mind. So once I heard that, I got no, I gotta I, ask you what the hell um, that's about. You know, I'm I I can't come up with an idea right now because I'm thinking about animals. But yeah. there is a chapter in the encyclopedia about how it warns people that you have to be um, aware of the fact that different cultures have different um, dietary and sexual and religious beliefs and practices. You okay. know, menstruation, um, uh, uh, sexual aggression. Um, hostility towards men. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know. For example, this isn't sexual, but it's an aggression, an aggression thing. You know, it talks about in the encyclopedia. I talk about you know watering holes. I mean, if you go into the wrong pub in England, you're going to get the shit beat out of you because you're not from the right neighborhood. You know, it, it, it depends on what we're talking about. Right, I see what you're saying. Okay, all right. All right. But what happened? You you brought up this, and I'm going to go back to this idea of a taboo. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to say now is something that is basically got to be one of the biggest taboos in the United States and in Western Europe, and that is the subject of wolves. And um, before we talk about wolves, we've got to talk about insects, okay? Insects? Now, I have to tell you that you probably don't realize this, but there's something like 92,000 different kinds of insects. Yeah, I figured it was like – I figured it was more than that. But I, oh, it's right. more, maybe it's more than that. I mean, but there, there's – there's this gazillions, ten zillion of kinds of insects, and right. in the encyclopedia I talk about that. And I also talk about how the, the common tick is spreading further north because of warmer climates. It's spreading further north. Yeah, There's more that. of them. And Lyme disease, which was only recently um, uh, diagnosed, is becoming much more prevalent. It's, it's spreading further around the world. We're seeing it uh, documented for the first time in Mongolia and Kazakhstan. And long riders are getting Lyme disease while they're traveling. We've had three long riders become seriously ill since I spoke to you uh, from Lyme disease, from tick bites. And um, President George W. Bush got Lyme disease from a tick bite. Um, And the interesting thing about a tick is that nobody ever says they mean you no harm are that the tick is a symbol of nature. (laughs) Right, right, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, it's a tick. Right. Okay, so what what does a tick do? A tick crawls up your leg, it bites you on your leg, and it ingests bacteria into your body, and you get really sick, and it's nasty, and that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way nature works. It's not personal. You just happen to be a source of meat that's walking by. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like no. It's kind of like it, yeah. It's kind of like how this. N- nobody's really like a big fan of like pigeons. You know what I mean? It's like people love birds. Even the you know bird people can you know they like birds, but it's like pigeons. No, you know what I mean? Like rats, rats and pigeons and ticks for sure. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we don't take. I mean, uh, a pigeon. Look, you know, if you go to St. Mark's uh, Plaza in Venice, it's populated by hundreds, thousands of pigeons. And, you know, some people call them flying rats. Some people hate pigeons. Right, exactly, yeah. But lice, pigeons, they don't, they don't have that kind of warm attraction for most modern people. Yeah. But the wolf 
different thing going on for it. And what I um, document in the encyclopedia is an entire chapter about wolf attacks against horses and humans. And um, what was so surprising to me was, I, I mean, I knew that there was, a, there was a famous episode of a Romanian long writer who was, barely escaped um, being uh, attacked by a wolf pack. He was traveling cross-country through a forest in um, the early 19th century, and um, he had a revolver and a sword, and he put his horse into a gallop, and it was a near miss, and he got away. And that was the only episode that I knew of, and I thought, well, you know, no, there's no big deal there. I mean, you know, don't bump into wolves. But as I, it's like the dietary evidence. It's something I didn't look for, but the evidence kept mounting and mounting and mounting, and there was more and more of it. And what I discovered was that there was so much evidence of wolves and how they had been misunderstood that I ended up making uh, a separate chapter in the encyclopedia just to warn modern equestrian explorers about how not only did most people misunderstand the potential danger of wolves, but how vast and fast they were moving and spreading across um, North America and Western Europe. And this, is, this has happened in, with such rapidity that I, I'm just, I mean, the chapter in the book in the encyclopedia, the encyclopedia is going to be released in a couple of weeks, and the chapter is already out of date because the wolf news has moved by that fast. Yeah. So what have you uncovered about these wolves, though, dude? I mean, how, how prevalent is this? How, how uh, well, you know, you what should we do? You're trying to warn people. Wait, you can't talk about wolves without talking about Walt Disney. All right, let's do it. Okay, because um, you can't talk about wolves without understanding lemmings, okay? And here's what I discovered. Back in 1958, Walt Disney, the Disney studio, they made a movie called White Wilderness, okay? Now, this movie was supposed to depict an Arctic environment. It was a nature film, okay? And this is the movie that shows the famous footage of lemmings in a migrative, um, a migratory wave of lemmings, and they're launching themselves off a cliff into the water below. Do you do you know about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar well, with lemmings. Fake. What's that? I said that's fake. Really? Yeah. The Walt Studio, the Walt Disney Studio, faked the footage. Okay. They put up a banner poster saying film at the top of the world, and the film was actually shot near Calgary. And they don't even have any lemmings in Calgary, and there's no outlet to the sea there. And what they did was they hired children to go out and catch lemmings for 25 cents apiece, okay? <laughs> then they took them back to Calgary, and for what they, what they did was the Disney cameraman placed the captured lemmings on a spinning turntable covered with snow, and then they showed the lemmings being flung into the ocean, being flung into the air. And then what they did was they took to film to, to capture the lemmings' death scene. The Disney crew deliberately herded the animals off a cliff and showed them falling onto the rocks and drowning in the Bow River. And that's not the Arctic Ocean, as implied by the film. Yeah. And so they made this film called White Wilderness, and they actually won an Academy Award for that. Okay. And they made a lot of corporate profit. And that's where this they perpetrated the idea that lemmings commit suicide. That's where this came from. 
okay, from Walt Disney. Yeah. Right? And the Walt Disney Lemming story is the precedent for a book and a film called Never Cry Wolf. Have you heard that? No, no. So the idea that wolves mean you no harm and that wolves don't eat you, that's that's recent. Okay. I don't know who believes that, dude. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go anywhere near a, a, a wolf. Like that. To me, it's like they still seem dangerous to me. I don't know who's who. Who believes that wolves are mean you no harm? Well, it, let me let me tell you something. If you've ever heard anything that's going to raise controversy on your on your show, you if you say again to the to the American listeners, you know, I don't think wolves mean me any harm. I mean, you know, they they people. This is a. Um, a lightning rod of a topic. Okay? Really? Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, people. Let, let me back. Before we talk about what people are like today, let me tell you where, where, what happened. Back in 1963, uh, a Canadian named Farley Mowat, M O W A T, he wrote um, a book called Never Cry Wolf. Right. And he was um, stationed up in Canada, and he. Um, was supposed to monitor wildlife while he was up there. And he's the guy who wrote the story that says, oh, wolves don't hunt down caribou, wolves hunt down mice, okay? And wolves are not as bad as we believe they are. They're actually very nice creatures, and they don't mean this any harm, okay? And so the evidence that wolves were lethal killers was either ignored or replaced in Moffat's book, all right? And this book went on to become a global bestseller. Uh, I mean, it's been translated into everything, Japanese, everything. And Disney bought up the rights to the book. Disney made a film called Never Cry Wolf. Disney's studio, again, is the one that perpetrated this animal myth that wolves mean you no harm, okay? And you don't have to be worried about wolves. And it wasn't until um, the fall of the Soviet Union that an American uh, academic called Dr. Will Graves, he went in and actually studied Russian documents which proved how dangerous wolves were and how the American and Canadian and English conception of wolves had been falsely um, created by this Hollywood mythology. And what he did was he documented how communism rose to power in connection with an effort to um, save the peasants um, from being eaten by wolves. Huh. And so this goes back to how dangerous wolves are, and now they have been um, they're reemerging straight across um, Europe. The first wolf was recently seen in Lithuania. That was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, when I finished the wolf chapter in 2013, I had a map of wolf packs who had moved out of Russia. They had come um, across Germany, but since then they've now reached the Atlantic. And uh, I have photographs of a wolf walking down a main street in a large city in Holland, um, and they've spread across um, Europe. And most modern people think that wolves um, are not any kind of threat. And, of course, that's as the... That's the, not the uh, case. No, that's not the case because in in the chapter, I've got a picture here of poor Kenton Carnegie. Um, he was a, a 
a researcher. He was up in Saskatchewan, and he was killed in Eaton in 2005. And here's another photograph. Hang on a second. On the next page of um, Candice Burner. And uh, she was killed in Eaton in March 2010. She was out jogging. And part of this gets back to um, another film, um, uh, Dances with Wolves. Do you remember seeing that movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Captain John Dunbar, Lieutenant John Dunbar, the famous scene where he comes out of the cabin and he holds out the piece of bacon, and the wolf comes up and he eats the bacon from the guy's hand. Yeah. So what happens is, is that wolves are incredible alpha predators, and as they become habituated to uh, humans or human presence, they're really intelligent. And as they lose fear of humans, then they invade their space. And so by feeding that um, wolf that bacon, what Dunbar was doing was inviting it into his living space. And traditionally, humans knew that if wolves become acclimated to humans, that old people and especially children are put at great risk. Um, so the chapter explains um, and gives evidence of that. And what it also does is it provides the, I'm sorry to say this, but really gruesome details of how wolves kill um, horses and uh, other animals. And uh, that's really disturbing, but it's very accurate and um, unfortunately true. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, I don't really, I never really, I always kind of considered horses to be, <laughs> To be dangerous. I mean, uh, wolves to be dangerous. So to me, it's like. I think you're an exception in that. I think if you went around and talked to most Americans, most Americans would say, no, 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 no. Wolves don't eat people. Wolves don't attack people. Wolves are afraid of people. And really, um, okay. What what that 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 may be based on recent um, historical evidence because wolves are smart and wolves. Um, Wolves learn from each other. They, you know, they run in packs, okay, and they have incredible sense of smell and hearing, and so they're able to detect prey from a tremendous distance away, and they'll zero in on something. And horses, for example, they're um, this is what's so terrible about horses, and this is why it applies to the long runner world, and that is because when the wolf start when the wolf pack starts chasing the horse, they try to jump onto its back. And what they do is they grab it, and then they attack it in its anus, and they start eating it. And the more wolves that pile onto it, they start eating the horse from the rear. And then one wolf darts underneath, and they disembowel the horse. And once the horse is disemboweled, its intestines fall out. Then the horse is immobilized, and then the wolf pack comes in, and then they start eating the animal alive. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's... It's really disgusting. That's pretty gruesome. Now, in the chapter, it explains how one of the reasons cowboys used to hate wolves so much was because they do this to cattle, too. They they will eat a cow. Uh, they'll attack a cow or a horse, and they will bring it down in this really painful, gruesome way. Um, you know you've heard of wolfing your food? Wolves yeah. don't have teeth like lions. They have different kinds of teeth. They take giant chunks, and they tear it out. So, you're, so the victim's literally being torn to pieces. Jesus. And so what happens is that the, um, the horse is being torn. Pieces of the horse are being torn out. But the horse often lives and is left there immobilized and 
in incredible agony. And then in the chapter, it gives accounts of cowboys who talk about how they've had to come up and shoot horses that have survived these horrendous attacks. Um, so it's not just people. It's horses and it's other animals. Um, and the other issue that is very seldom ever talked about, it's coming out more and more now, though, is what they call uh, surplus killing. Because if a lion, for example, if a lion hunts down uh, an animal, the pride comes in that surrounds it, and they eat it, okay? Yeah. It's like you eating a hamburger. You go to McDonald's, you order a Big Mac, you eat your Big Mac, you get up, you leave, okay? You, what you don't do is you don't do what's called surplus killing. You don't go into Big McDonald's and go, right, I want 20 Big Macs, and you put them on the table, and you eat one, and you leave the other ones and walk away. That's right. what wolves do. Wolves will kill more animals than they need. They get into a panic, or I won't say frenzy. panic. They go into a frenzy. That's I'm sorry, that's the word. They go into a frenzy, and um, the the evidence on the wolves, like the horse thing, keeps coming in. Um, in 2017, there was evidence in Yellowstone, I think it was, and it showed 17 elk all laid dead. They had all been killed. They hadn't been eaten. They'd all been killed. And last week in France, 32 uh, expensive sheep were killed in, in, in the mountains of France. They weren't eaten. They were just killed. And this is the thing about wolves. They they present more of a threat than modern humanity understands. Yeah. And um, it's much, much worse than people can really comprehend. Right, right. I think that's why you're, you're sounding the alarm about this. Now, you say they're spreading, like uh, they made it to the no, 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 Atlantic? Spread, spreading is a, is a past tense. It's spread. It is ah. What I, what I, let me tell you something. Um, I was going to say, maybe if you remember when you first wrote me and said, hey, how about speaking to me again? I sent you a New York Times story about the First World War. Do you remember that? Uh, I maybe I don't recall it off the top of my head. Okay. I'm not sure if oh, you did. Let me tell you how bad this was. Come on. In 1917, the New York I'm looking at the article. In 1917, the New York Times reported that the fighting between the Germans and the Russians had to be stopped, and they enacted a temporary peace so that the soldiers could jointly defend themselves against wolf packs, which were killing soldiers from both armies. Oh wow! I'm looking at the story right here, and That's crazy. what happened was that um, there were so many wolves in Russia, and um, people weren't um, before the rise of um, the Bolsheviks. You know, not many people were armed, and a lot of people were uh, living out in the country. A lot of people, especially children, were systematically um, killed, mm-hmm. and so when Lenin came to power, he promised, one of his political promises was that he would get the wolves under control. And so when communism became a political force in the Soviet Union, as communism spread, wolf eradication programs spread too. And they employed government hunters that kept wolves under control. But when communism stopped, the Russians, I'm sorry, the hunters were, lost their jobs, and then the wolf population exploded. And it not only went through Kazakhstan and Mongolia, it spread all the way across Europe, and now it's reached the Atlantic. Wow. That's crazy. Well, there's more wolves now in North America, in the United States. When when you and I talked last time, there were, you know, what, 70,000 wolves in the United States? And I'm sure there's lots more now. 
And the, the wolf discussion in the United States is, under, is a serious topic of concern. And it's not just between ranchers who have cattle and sheep that are dying painfully. Okay, that's what we have to talk about. We're, talking about, we're not talking about a quick kill, you know, a cut across the throat. Right, right. People are dying, and people are seeing their beloved animals killed painfully. That's one thing. But we're also talking about an urban view of a wild animal versus a rural view. If you're a French farmer and you've got all these expensive sheep and you walk out and you've got 35 dead sheep, you're out of business. Right. And it's emotionally devastating as well as financially devastating. But people are starting to realize that wolves present a potential threat that Hollywood has um, not accurately depicted. Well, that's Hollywood for you, right? Well, yeah. Don't trust them. If they tell you about lemmings or politics or wolves, don't trust them. <laughs> that doesn't leave much. No. Oh man. So, uh, so what else is going on with you? We're near the end of the show here, so uh, let's let's go for like another ten minutes because we got a late start on things. If you if you can, you don't mind, right? Uh, no, no. Um, well, I, I think if you, I it, it's not. I think what's interesting that's also of global importance. Yeah. Um, and. And and this is about horses. This this show started with horses, so let's end on horses. And you you, you talked about the Long Riders Guild, and um, I'll tell you briefly about it. The Long Riders Guild started with five um, equestrian explorers from three countries, and there's now 400 Long Riders in 46 countries. And uh, there were two equestrian expeditions when the guild started. That we've now mentored or supplied or equipped uh, 200 on every continent except Antarctica. Nice. And um, the the journeys that are being done um, are just, they're extraordinary. It went from being on the verge of extinction to becoming an increasing uh, popular thing uh, that just sweeps across borders. It, it, it's something that cannot be defined by nationalism, competition, or commercialism. Yeah. And that's the thing is that it's a horse and a human on a journey across uh, a different part of the world uh, towards the unknown. And this is so appealing that that's why it's growing uh, with such rapidity. Um, we, there, there's a fantastic long rider in the saddle right now. Um, uh, his name is Li Jing. And first he made a 9,000-mile solo journey from Russia across Siberia down to Peking. And then he made a 3,000-mile ride along the Great Wall of China, and now he's on a 5,000-mile ride across Russia to the Arctic Circle. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that's happening right now. But since you and I talked, um, Philippe Lighte rode 14,000 miles from Canada to the end of Patagonia. And um, like I said, Bernice Indy, she rode to ocean to ocean in both directions. And it's not just the mileage, you know, this – Riding a horse isn't like an odometer, you know. It's not like your car. When right, you're right. when you're in this steel cocoon, you go flying through, and you know you don't smell anything, you don't interact with nature. But when you're on a horse at three miles an hour, you're really out there, and this is appealing more and more to younger and younger people. Um, and so, with the release of first the horse shovel handbook, that's the small cavalry style manual that I finished. That's being um, read around the world and is being taken on journeys, you know, just on on, on every continent. Yeah. And now the, the big encyclopedia is coming out, so we're going to have uh, an even larger movement in that. 
Well, Beagle, what's the website so folks can find out more about your stuff? Longridersguild.com? www.thelongridersguild.com. The guild is the the repository of the largest um, collection of equestrian uh, travel information in history, and it's all free. And um, there's a special page which talks about how we don't, don't interact with Facebook or social media, and we don't take people's, we don't use cookies. And um, it's one of the pioneering websites. It's uh, a vision of what Sir Tim Berners-Lee thought the internet was going to be like. It's not commercial. It's about sharing important information for free with people who are desperate to learn. Hey, that's that could be the motto for our show, man. Yeah, free <laughs> fr- free stuff, free uh, free material. Um, you know, for people that are trying to learn. And, uh, you know, that's what we've been doing all these years. So, Well, I think you've done a tremendous positive good thing to help people by exposing them to all this important information. And I, I think that, you know, you can look back with pride on all the shows that you've done. And I'm really grateful to you personally for having given us or given me the opportunity to share this with people. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's been a wild ride. And like I said, everybody, so many people say, they, they they just mentioned the meat eating horses because it completely like uh, you know it changed well, their whole perspective on things because it really is one of those things that you just don't unless someone introduces the idea to you it just doesn't cross your mind at all it's really a, an amazing sort of um, phenomenon in a sense. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Tim, for for sharing it with your with your listeners and uh, for giving it. I mean, this is a global situation with uh, important history, and I think that you've done a tremendous service for everybody. No, thank you very much. All right, longridersguild.com is the website. Thanks for coming back on the show, Cullen, and uh, best of luck on uh, on your next ride. All right, talk to you soon. Ciao. Have a good night. Bye. There you go, folks. That was Cullen O'Reilly talking about uh, meat-eating and murderous horses and also wolves. Uh, I thought wolves were already dangerous. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little confused about that because I, I, I would like to hear – from the listeners on this one. So on Facebook or email or whatever, you let me know. Because I was under the impression that horse, that, that, uh, that wolves were dangerous. I wouldn't be going near a wolf. I just assumed they would hurt me. So, so um, But maybe I'm in the minority. I don't know. That's that's what Cullen seemed to suggest. Um, yeah, so as as I said at the beginning of the show, this is, this is the last long-form conversation we're going to do here on Season 10. Um, and now it's time, I guess you could say, for the finale, the big, the big end show. Uh, as we wrap up season ten, we're going to wrap up uh, Banal of America in the seasonal format. This is sort of the big culmination uh, program. That it's been a real. I guess I'll talk more about it when we do the show. But it's you know it's been. I wanted to really stick the landing on this one, folks. I wanted to make sure that we went out in a way that uh, that sort of captured the spirit of Banal of America at its core. So. With that in mind, I'm announcing now here for all of you that the uh, season finale of Banal of America Audio Season 10, and I guess you could say for now the series finale, uh, will be coming at you this coming Sunday. So we're only a few days away now, folks. This coming Sunday, April 22nd, it's going to be live from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'll be down there for Paramania 3. And we've gone the extra mile on this one, folks. We've uh, we've got we've rented a the courtyard of a occult bookstore. Let me get the name here for you, so I can really uh, 
<laughs> really get you all the. I should have. I should have been better prepared for this. Um, let me see. Do, 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 do. Uh, all right, almost there. There we go. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to be coming at you uh, live from the courtyard of the Starling Magical Occult Shop, located in the French Quarter of New Orleans, this coming Sunday, uh, live on the Internet from 7 p.m. to – no, 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 an hour back. Yeah, so let me see. From 5 to 7 (laughs) p.m. There you go. No, I'm wrong. Jesus. This is what happens when I get up at 9 o'clock in the morning to do a show. No, it's going to be from 5 to 7 p.m. 5 to 7 p.m. Because I'm looking at it here. I have it on East Coast time. Um, We're going to be – god damn you, Benal. It's It's 7 to 9 p.m. 7 to 9 p.m. Because New Orleans is Central time. I'm looking at the East Coast time. uh, Or at least I'm looking at local time on here. So uh, an hour – further ahead so 7 to 9 p.m eastern time live from new orleans uh the starling magic occult uh, starling magical occult bookshop um and uh as i said i'm going to be down in new orleans for paramania which is the big gathering of um of friends and and compatriots and fellow travelers in the world of the paranormal, it's kind of like an underground uh, secret meetup thing we do every year. And uh, since I'm going to be down in New Orleans, and we were looking for sort of the best way to wrap this up, it all kind of came together. And I was like, let's do it. Let's do a live show from New Orleans. You know, a big fucking party, man. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be a big party. And uh, Greg Bishop's going to be there. Uh, Joshua Cutchin's going to be there. Uh, Miguel Romero, Red Pill Junkie, he's going to be there. Steve Ray is going to be there. Some folks may remember Steve. He's called in a few times on the show. Um, plus a whole bunch of listeners uh, in all of America. So it's like just going to be a big celebration and, and sort of a jam session uh, live in the courtyard of an occult bookshop. I mean, how how crazy is that? How <laughs> you know that's as that's as. Uh, you know, bombastic an ending as I can possibly come up with, I think. Um, you know, a live show from New Orleans in the courtyard of an occult bookshop, uh, the Starling Magical Occult Shop in the French Quarter. So we're going to be right in the French Quarter on Sunday afternoon, uh, Sunday evening, wrapping up BOA Audio Season 10, wrapping up an All-America Audio, the seasonal style, um, you know, taking a break after that, obviously. So it's it's the big finale, folks. And it's going to be huge, uh, and that's about it. And people, I hope uh, you know, folks will call in. We'll we'll get a phone number for it, uh, so people can call in if they want. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So that's this coming Sunday, April twenty second, uh, seven to nine p.m. Eastern time. And we'll have the links up in all of America. It's going to be. I'm warning you now. <laughs> I'm warning you now. We're, we're, we're going to be broadcasting from the courtyard of an occult bookshop in New Orleans. I don't know what the fuck could go wrong. This could go completely haywire. You know, we could be, we could be sitting there going, shit, we can't connect to this thing. Um, God bless him, Greg Bishop. He's done these live shots before. We did one in Halifax a couple of years ago. So we, we know it can be done. And, and uh, we're kind of working out the details. And I'm hoping to... 
just have a direct link from Banal of America right to the stream uh, that you'll be able to click on at 7 p.m. on Sunday. And uh, But like I said, who knows? Who knows what could go wrong? Something could go wrong. But no matter what, we'll record it. So the festivities will, will be – will be recorded, but I, you know, I'd say I'm like 95% positive we'll be, we'll be able to pull off the live thing, but I'm warning you now that you never know what might go wrong, but, uh, I mean, at worst case scenario, I guess I could fire up the, uh, the blog talk and get us, get us live on there, so, I mean, we're going to be live, and, uh, at the same time, while we're live, we're also, uh, it's going to be, hopefully you'll be able to get it right through Banal of America, and also, uh, Smiles Lewis of the Anomaly Radio Network is also going to simulcast the live finale on the Anomaly Radio Network. So there are, there should be a bunch of different ways for people to listen. Uh, you know, I don't want to overhype it because it's just going to be kind of us hanging out, talking, reflecting on the show, shooting the shit. Um, you know, hopefully get some calls in from folks who've been on the show in the past and talk a little bit about, you know, the legacy of this program. So... That's it. And all while sitting in the courtyard of an occult bookshop in New Orleans in the French Quarter. So I can't I can't think of a crazier way to wrap it up than that. So on that note, uh, thank you all for tuning in. And uh, you'll be hearing from me in, you know, five days, six days or so, uh, this coming Sunday, live from New Orleans. How many times am I going to say it? How many times are you going to say it? But I'll live from New Orleans the courtyard of the Starling Magical Occult Shop in the French Quarter, 7 to 9 p.m., the big Banal of America finale. This is it. So tune in, and uh, I'll still be on vacation after that. <laughs> this is, yeah, I'm just a dick. Yeah, so after the twice, you're probably going to have, if you don't tune in live, there's a good chance this thing's not going to be on the podcast feed for at least, uh, at least until the Friday after after the episode. So, you know, you're going to be waiting like five days to hear the show if you don't tune in live, um, because I'm going to still be on vacation until I get back on Friday. So once I get back on Friday, I'll flip the episode and get it on the podcast feed. But uh, yeah, so that's it. So you really want to tune in live, and you want to, uh, you'll be able to get the link through Banal of America. I'm going to try. I have to get that set up before I uh, before I leave for New Orleans on Thursday. So. Check that out, and uh, once again, thanks for tuning into the show. Thanks again to Colin O'Reilly. And uh, on that note, I'll be talking to you on Sunday live from New Orleans.